0: If before the beginning, in the writing at least, was a typewriter, a dog and a snake, the beginning itself, 11 years previously, was a murderer, a mule and clay. Even in beginnings though, someone needs to go first, and on that day, it could only be the murderer. After all, he was the one who got everything moving forward and all of us looking back. He did it by arriving. He arrived at 6 o'clock. As it was, it was quite appropriate, too, another blistering February evening. The day had cooked the concrete, the sun still high and aching. It was heat to be held and depended on, or really, that had hold of him. In the history of all murderers everywhere, this was surely the most pathetic. At 5 foot 10, he was average height, at 75 kilos, a normal weight. But make no mistake, he was a wasteland in a suit. He was bent postured, he was broken... He leaned at the air as if waiting for it to finish him off, only it wouldn't, not today, for this, fairly suddenly, didn't feel like a time for murderers to be getting favours. No, today, he could sense it, he could smell it, he was immortal. Which pretty much summed things up. Trust the murderer to be unkillable, at the one moment he was better off dead.
1: Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading, and aims to help readers discover their next favorite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Angus Dalton here with you. You just heard Marcus Zusak reading from his latest book, Bridge of Clay, a suburban epic about five brothers, the Dunbars, who live with a dog, a cat, a mule, a pigeon, and a goldfish named after the king of men. He is the author of six novels, including The Messenger and The Book Thief. And he's joining me now to talk about Bridge of Clay. Hi, Marcus. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Angus. Good to be here. So uh, carrying around this book after reading how much went into it, and the 13 years of elbow grease that you spent writing it, it feels like this sort of like mythical tome, like the book that almost broke Marcus Zuzak. <laughs> what does it feel like looking at a finished copy of the book, even now six months after it was published?
0: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I think you've just got to be totally honest with these things. It's, uh, you know, it it's kind of a beautiful thing too. Like they've, they've done such a good job with it, and and there's this kid on the roof... on on the cover that you brought in and uh and it's funny when I first saw that uh, I thought god that's absolutely clay but it's also me and I think that's kind of what this book is the 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 bridge in the book is made of clay of that character it's everything he has in him and I think this book is is made of me so um I think I sort of I kind of compartmentalise I think, I don't realise I do it, but it, it's almost like these things aren't happening, like sometimes I have to remind myself that I did finish it and that it is out and uh, you know and then, then you'll get people have, make their comments on the book and tell you what they thought of it and you go yeah it is real, so, uh, so it's, uh, it, but it does feel mythical in a sense, I feel like all books do because so often you just can't believe you're actually a writer. Uh, That it actually happened. So um, I've been living
1: that mythical kind of life for the last 20 years now, I've realised. I think the the reason I'm using the word mythical as well is because how much... Obviously, in many ways, it's like a suburban, gritty story, but then also you've got so many sort of uh, mythical illusions in there as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, just how all of the animals... I mean, the mule's name is Achilles... The goldfish is Agamemnon, king of men, as you, as you said. Uh, and uh, although they don't call him the king of men, as every time they mention his name, usually they just complain about the fact that, <laughs> you know, couldn't it be a bit easier to pronounce? <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I, I, I really like that idea that we, we start being who we are long before we're even born. And uh, sort of like the stories that led to us even coming into existence and uh, all the coincidences. And then you might, all of us have these stories or so many of us have stories of, you know, parents or grandparents or great grandparents who who made these great journeys to a certain place. And then we wind up with all of those stories kind of embedded into who we are. And uh, And so that was why the mythical element in the book of using Homer uh, so the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, that thread that runs through the book, it just gave it that I, you know, gave me that feeling that we are making myths as we live, and uh, and there was just that. It started actually with the nicknames. All the characters had nicknames, and I went, oh, that's a bit like how Achilles is never just Achilles he's always the fast-running Achilles. Odysseus is always the resourceful Odysseus, you know, laughter-loving Aphrodite. And so as soon as I thought of the nickname for Penny Dunbar, who for me is the real heart of the book, uh, the Dunbar boy's mother, as soon as I called her the mistake maker, I immediately, it's amazing how you do all this work. You, You do years and years and years of work, and then you have a moment where something just hits you. And I saw her practising the piano in Eastern Europe with the drizzle or the snow coming down outside. And uh, I saw her father who's teaching her, calling her the mistake maker. And then I thought, oh, and she came from a watery wilderness. And that line is borrowed or stolen straight from Homer. And I thought, that's what this book is. It is a suburban epic. Because we all think we live these dull, mundane lives but we all fall in love and we all have people die on us and we all have big arguments in the kitchen and, uh, and we all do terrible things and, and heroic things, which might even be that time where you go up and talk to someone for the first time. I, I feel like I wanted to recognise those moments and, uh, and build them into a life and it's a life that's being built into a bridge and, uh, and, and so 13 years later, 14 years later, yeah, it is done, and uh, it does have that sort of, it does have that mythological sort of feeling to it. I think
1: it's funny that you mentioned the nicknames because I was going to ask because obviously we've got the Dunbars' mother, the mistake maker, and their father, the murderer, and their grandfather, the statue of Stalin. So mm. it's um, it's funny that that was already present in the book before you sort of started borrowing from Homer.
0: Yeah, I sort of I think I'd always I always feel like you. You sort of pinpoint where ideas come from, and then you go, oh, am I telling the truth now? Was it or was I just lying?" <laughs> and I try to always tell the absolute uh, truth. In you know, anytime I'm, I'm you know being interviewed, or, or in general, you know, and that's like talking about your fears as well, and even to talk about you know that person who came up to you and said, "Oh yeah, I read Bridge of Clay." Uh, you know, not quite as good as the book thing oh, no. <laughs> or or yeah, or even or worse than that you know you you, but that's being a writer you know you've got a, a you know thir- one of the first rules of being a writer is that you have to be able to take rejection you have to be able to take humiliations and uh, you know and, and people just feeling like they've got the right and I guess they do have the right I feel like we live in the age of opinions now too where if you've gotten the, it's a little bit like we photograph everything now and uh, it's almost like You weren't there unless you took a photo of it. (laughs) It didn't happen unless you took a photo of it. Pixar, it didn't happen, absolutely. And it's sort of like, and sometimes like, uh, you know, you'll be standing at outside, okay, let's say, let's go for an absolute cliche. You might be standing at uh, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, let's say, and you'll be taking all these photos of it and then you'll stop and you'll go, oh, I I think I should probably look at it. (laughs) You know, you remind yourself to actually look at it and... uh, and I think maybe it's the same with opinions these days too is you didn't really have an opinion unless you've told someone that opinion. And uh, and so I think uh, I think all of this is, is one of the, the things with being a writer is that it's the sort of job that's always challenging how much you really want it. How much do you really want to do it? How much, what does it mean to you? And so, yeah, you get your criticisms and that can be on, you know, Prime time, well, maybe not primetime television, but it might be on TV or it might where someone's read your book and and uh, and has either good or bad things to say. And sometimes your good feedback can be equally as challenging because then you feel like you've got something to live up to. And, uh, and you know, that's often the case with The Book Thief as an example where, uh, you know, people... You know, and it's the most beautiful thing in the world when someone comes up and says oh, it's my favourite book or oh, I love that book. And, and you know, that's what you're in it for is you, you sit down to try to write someone's favourite book and if you fall short of that, well, it's no disgrace because there are a lot of great books in the world. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're always questioning how much you really want to do it and why you want to do it. And I think the reason I love being a writer is I, I like the idea of... Uh, waking up in the morning and being able to roll out of bed into the world of the book. And so I feel like I live in two worlds. Uh, there's the real world and then there's that other world that I'm creating where I get to go in there and, and believe it while I'm there.
1: Yeah. When you are waking up and rolling into the world of the Dunbar household, what are the first things that you would see?
0: Well, the first thing I would do would probably start swearing. <laughs> <laughs> Although there isn't that... It's funny, It's that they're not that bad. But uh, I guess... Probably the detail I would say is probably the, just the breadcrumbs that are perennially around the toaster and uh, the coastline of dirty dishes reaching towards the sink. And that was a line very early in the book, a you know, coastline of dishes stretching towards the sink, um, where you just go, oh, that's where I was actually just a kid again, playing in the sandpit, which I think you're always trying to get to as a writer is, I feel like you do all this hard work, like I said before, where it's like you're climbing a mountain, but there's the promise of a sand pit at the top. And when you write an image that you, that you like like that, uh, it doesn't have to be an image, it can be anything, but for me, often, it's just a play on words, or just an idea, like, like say, so that coastline of Dirty Dishes. I remember writing that and thought, writing that and thinking, Oh, that's that's I'm just playing there, you know, and they're the moments you live for, and so they'd be a few things. The other thing would be, I think, uh, the mule hair that's on the carpet at some point. So uh, Henry comes back and he's deliberately gotten himself all beaten up uh, to to sort of to help Clay in a really in a strange kind of way, and he blacks out on on he 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 sort of ends up down on the carpet, and Matthew, as the narrator, looks down. He says, "You know, he was lying there with the dog hair, cat hair, and Jesus, is that mule hair on the carpet?" <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I just there was a sort of uh, yeah, and that to me was part of the love of that household. It's uh, um, yeah, it's it's a rough and tumble place, but and and there are all these rules of love and engagement, uh, you know, that are that are at play, <clears throat> and. Uh, and it's a kind of complex system, but it's how they live. And, uh, and, and I think there's a, there's a kind of, it's almost like there's kind of a river running under that house and, and that's their bond, you know, and they reach into that when they, they really need it. And uh, I think with those brothers, I, I sort of, I, I never had this exact thought, but I, I, I think it's always easier to, to put into play later what you were trying to do but I think it was more I was just trying to write about boys and brothers, not only... Uh, I wanted to write about them both how they are and how we would like them to be. And uh, and when you have a mix of those two things, then they're not just cardboard cutouts or they're not just, you know, delivering a good... you know, the right message. You know, I just want them to be real and to feel... both feel them as they are but feel for them as as well. And uh, And so now, you know... I think the last thing I could say about those boys is that I remember when the book was done, and this circles back, I think, to your first question. Uh, I remember when it was done, it was going to the printer, and my publisher rang me and she said, oh, how does it feel? You must be ecstatic. And I said, typically. <laughs> I said, oh, I'm actually feeling kind of flat and, and a bit low. I, su- I said, um, I don't really... I said, I spent all you know the last more than a decade whinging about these people and now I'm trying to figure
1: out how the hell I'm gonna live without them. I read that um, Clay actually came to you as the character a long time ago before you even started writing when you were 20. Mm. How did that character walk into your head?
0: I think I was really an ambitious kid always. I think because I'm the youngest of four kids. I might've been ambitious anyway. But I'd always see my brother and sisters always doing things that were just out of reach. And uh, I, I often joke that my, my brother and two sisters would go horse riding. This is very, I mean, yeah, once or twice a year, if that. And, uh, and they would go and do that with my dad and I would have to sit in the car with my mum and wait. And, I, and maybe at some point I thought, one day I'm going to show you bastards. <laughs> Although I don't remember having that exact thought. But I always... I always had this sort of ambition in me to want to do something and uh, and so I had this idea when I was 20 walking around the suburb where I grew up and uh, I just thought of a boy building a bridge and wanting it to be this one beautiful great thing and uh, why it was a bridge I don't know but uh, I think maybe I just have uh, an affinity for bridges, and, and I think you know, you grow up in a, a city like Sydney where there is water everywhere, and you've got this iconic bridge, and and so on. And I just had this idea, and then it's funny; every book needs just a little bit of luck to come into being, or or to start becoming a book. And in that case, it was the name of the character I called him Clayton, and I thought Clayton's Bridge. I thought that's the that's the title, and then a few months went by. And I went Bridge of Clay, and as soon as I had that thought, I thought oh, Clay, Clay. There's Clay the name, and then Clay the material, and the idea that Clay uh, can be moulded into anything, but it needs fire to set it. And I met, and I instantly saw where the book was heading and what the ending should be. And uh, and of course, it doesn't end like that because every book in that way to pretty much every book I've written has always been leading to this one thing and it always ends up veering left or right of it or coming up shorter than that moment uh, or going a bit further and uh, so I had this idea of a boy wanting to walk across the top of the water when the bridge floods and uh, and the sun would be coming up in the water, um, or the reflection of the sunrise would be in the water, and that would be the fire. And uh, and of course, that's not exactly what happens at the end of Bridge of Clay. And know, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so so that was it was just always having that ambitious character and uh, sort of manifested itself in a boy building a bridge. And and that's how then the other mythical element of the book came in. Which was Michelangelo and the Statue of David, and how in Florence uh, you go to the Academia Gallery and the Statue of David is like a prince under this dome of light that's been, you know, seemingly built especially for him. And you lead in, and leading into it, there are these unfinished sculptures of his called the Slaves or the Prisoners, and uh, and they're still fighting and almost like kicking and screaming out of, to get out of the marble. And uh, and so I thought, oh, that's the perfect juxtaposition. I don't really like to use that word for some reason, but it was <laughs> just very that. English teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and uh, it's sort of now I'm going, now I'm trying to go through all those other words that you should use in your uh, year twelve oh, uh, yeah. essays. And um, but yeah, it was the perfect contrast for for one of a better word and uh, of just where Clay is trying to reach that. He's trying to reach something like the David, but he still feels like the slaves. And, uh, and what I found was, and personally, I actually now prefer the slaves to the David because that's how we actually live. Yeah, I hadn't heard of the slaves
1: before. So
0: yeah, well, cool. it's, it's a fascinating thing to do is if you ever go to that museum or gallery uh, you just go and sit there and watch people, and everyone just goes. Everyone just almost disregards those statues, and they go straight to the winner. Yeah, <laughs> they go straight to David, and they'll be lucky if the, if they come back and, uh, and see those ones. And there's something beautiful about that as well, and certainly something beautiful about the people who do notice those, uh, you know, those those in transition sculptures that will never. Uh, transcend from from where they are now, and I think the line in in Bridge of Clay is that uh, they'll f- they've been fighting for centuries to get out of that
1: marvel, and mm-hmm. they will
0: fight for a few centuries more.
1: Yeah, I read that both of your parents um, migrated to Australia from Europe. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And it seems like the way that sort of stories about their experiences in Europe and some of the conflict that happened there and how those stories sort of unfolded in in random ways throughout your childhood was kind of formative. Is that right to say?
0: Yeah, I I think I was also... See, the thing I left out about being the youngest of four kids is that I was also spoiled. But at the way I was spoiled was that I got to spend the most amount of time with my mum and dad at a, at a period of time that was useful uh, rather than, uh, you know, rather than having their attention when I was zero to three years old, uh, or, or even later than that. So when I was in my early teenage years, that was when my sisters had moved out. My brother was more sort of out with friends and doing things like that. And so I got to sort of go on long bush walks with my dad. I'd go to work with my mum, some nights like she cleaned a doctor's surgery and I'd work with her and and I'd just ask the same I'd ask the same stories all the time I'd say can you tell me this story can you tell me that story and it would just be it wasn't a a set thing I mean it might some years it might have only been a couple of times but it's why I say to parents and teachers and any I say don't be afraid to tell the same story more than once because people want to they want to hit that point in the story, and kids especially they want to they want to hear it again and know if they're right or no. Uh, they want to hear that punchline, and uh, so it did make me kind of aware not only that you know they were telling me about their lives, but um, I think later on then I realised that I think they were just giving me a love of stories, and uh, and I think it's reflected in clay in in Bridge of Clay where he's the one who goes and does the dishes with his mum and dad uh just and says oh can you tell me about the statue of stalin or can you tell me about moon and the snake moon being his dad's red cattle dog that had a tussle with a a king brown snake and they both died and they'll bury it in the backyard in this old town which is important to the book as well and so i think it was just this idea uh that what we're made of really is stories and uh And you take stories out of our lives and there's actually, I mean, there are physical elements obviously and all sorts of information and granted, but I think stories are what tell us who we are and uh, I think hearing my mum and dad's story have have made me one of the lucky ones to
1: recognise that. You always seem to like talk about books and stories with a particular kind of uh, reverence which is so cool. And you can also see that in the way that books appear in uh, Bridge of Clay and your other books as well and how they're passed between different characters and they come down family lines and that sort of thing. Where do you think you got that reverence of books from? Well, I think it's just purely because
0: books have changed my life and uh, and that, that feeling of... You're 14 years old, you've got to read books for school and you're given The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton and it's the right book at the right time and your brother's snoring on the other side of the room being generally useless <laughs> <laughs> as usual and you're staying up late reading and uh, and you're there. And I think, I think because to me it's one of the ultimate magic acts of you're reading a novel, you know it's made up, it's totally fiction uh and uh but you believe it when you're in it and I thought that's what I want to do with my life and uh and, and then you're just given you know you just have these moments when you're reading a book and I feel like you know and I, I do love films as well and always have and and they get mentioned in in Bridge of Clay as well but I it's almost like uh, when, I, I, I always feel like th- maybe the difference. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to articulate it now. Is that when you're watching it on screen, it's given to you and you're, you're seeing it. But when I feel like when you're when you're when you're producing that by reading a book, it's like you're in it. Mm. Uh, it's like you're there. And uh, and and I think that's where the reverence comes from. Is that you know, the most uh, you know the most alive I've felt. Is you know there are many ways that you have that in your life, but one of those for me has always been reading. And uh, coming alive in a book is is one of those really. Uh, magical things.
1: I have a story that you just reminded me of. It's very quick. Mm-hmm. I was on a trip with some friends down the coast. You should just go like
0: on Africa. and on like I do. No, <laughs> not at all, not at all. Sorry, go on.
1: <laughs> and so I went on a trip with friends down the coast and um it was just one of those weeks where the sun shines every single day. It was just idyllic. We'd go to the beach, come back, be all, you know, drenched drenched in salt and we'd all mm. spread out on the balcony and read our books for hours. It was completely paradise, it was perfect. And um, I had my best friend, Emma, in front of me and uh, she was looking down at her book and I was sort of reading mine and I came out of my reading reverie for like a second and looked over at her and I could just see like a sliver of her face um, because she was looking down at the book and there was just something wrong. Like I couldn't tell what it was but something was just niggling me and I was sort of looking at her and she sort of sensed me watching her and then she turned and looked up at me and her eyes had blown up, they were swollen, and her face was beetroot red, and there were tears pouring out of her eyes, and her breathing was all wrong, and I was like, holy shit, my friend's having an <laughs> anaphylactic oh my shock. God. But she just finished The Book Thief, actually, right. <laughs> that was her melody. And that just reminded me, and I just remember watching that and being like, I cannot believe, and I, of course I've experienced that too, but watching it happen to another person, And also she finished Bridge of Clay the other day and uh, said that she had a similarly visceral reaction many times while reading it. And uh, just how little black lines on a page can evoke that sort of reaction is extraordinary.
0: It is. And, you know, that's so generous of you to tell that story. Thank you. And... uh and it, it is that funny thing when someone comes up to me and says, Yeah, thanks a lot. I was, <laughs> you made me cry on public transport. And I'll say, Oh, you know, and I've still never seen anyone reading any of my books in public. You've never ever. spotted someone. I've never. The closest oh. I've come was on a plane. And my wife said to me, That lady over there is reading your book. And, you know, and the writer in me wants, wants to tell the story like this that when I looked over, she was asleep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she wasn't. She had. But she had put it down though, so it didn't count. Uh, so clearly, it is a put downable book. <laughs> 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 uh, but um, but it's just uh, I, you, I hear these kinds of stories, and you and you think, God, that's it's just amazing, and uh, and and it's a, and it's an honor and a privilege too that that someone, you know, I think in this day and age too where we're all told that no one wants to go to the effort to concentrate anymore and so on and and in that case too i mean bridge of clay does make certainly more demands of the reader than the book thief did and uh and but that people are still willing to go that to go to that length they will be rewarded you know and and i'm not just talking about in the book thief or bridge of clay or whatever but but you know books are sometimes there to test you and uh and sometimes, you know, they are there to give you that kind of visceral reaction that you're talking about. And, uh, and you know, and I, I kind of love that. And I love that when I'm finishing Bridge of Clay on a hot, humid sort of day in Sydney in the afternoon, you have this idea in your mind that you're going to finish it as the sun's coming up in the morning. <laughs> the critics are all in bed. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, this book was never going to give it to me like that. It was always going to be... Harder or more interesting or not the expected thing, and it was just three or four in the afternoon, and uh, finishing that book, and I was just, uh, you know, I, I think I, I, it really hit me why Matthew, the eldest Dunbar boy, was the the one to tell the story, because I I think I realised how much I had become Matthew in the writing of it, and just how much he's telling this story, realising. And understanding how much he loves his brother yeah. and how much he wants him to come home and uh and that's that was how i felt finishing it and it's still i still get a bit emotional thinking about that now uh and just having little surprises like rory the really rough brother you know sort of saying when he's talking about rosie the the border collie he said you know i felt like she was just hanging on waiting for actually waiting for clay to come home
1: Mm.
0: and uh and he's the one who's always whinging and moaning about all the animals in the house so uh so it's just the little things and uh you spend so much time in the writing of a book and people are investing so much of themselves in the reading of a book and i love that books are tougher you know i love that books ask something of people still and because everything we i feel like we do live maybe more than ever, we sort of are all going, it's all about me. It's all about me. And books allow us to say, it's actually not about me at all. Uh, It's about this and them. And uh, let's see what it's like for other people for a while.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned before about uh, how Matthew ended up being the narrator of Bridge of Clay. And um, I read that you uh, did some experimentation through a couple of different narrators and narration styles and stuff like that. And that made me wonder, through the whole process of writing it, what was the mainstay of the book that was always going to be in it from the very beginning to the end of that 13-year period?
0: Mm, that's a really good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before either. And I think there, there were a couple of mainstays. One was I, I, every now and again I kind of joke that people would say, if you're having so much trouble with this book, just write one of your other ideas. And I'd say, well, that's the thing. I haven't gotten the other ideas, <laughs> but I, I think what I realise now is that every idea I was having was going into this book. Uh, this book was everything, and it was: you finish the book thief, what do you do? do? People would say just write something small and fun or whatever. I went, no, I want to bet everything, and I think that mentality of betting everything and saying let's put everything on the line again, let's put, it, let's do it, let's let's make this. Uh, either crash and burn or be equally as ambitious as the book Thief and uh, and if not, hopefully more ambitious. So I think that mentality was the real mainstay. There was a real determination there. And I think the other thing was just Clay himself as a character. And, uh, you know, I really loved that kid and I loved what he was about. And I, I kind of liked the idea that you had to spend this whole book getting to know who he is and uh, you know and that's where you do get people who say oh there's i feel like, you know there are, i think some people they do just want a book where this happens and this happens and this happens and you know everything straight away you know in the first 50 pages what you're going to get you know what's already happened and uh, and so i like the idea that in books it's one of the one of the few places now where we don't have to know everything straight away. You have to, you'll be given a little bit and a little bit and we spend this whole book getting to know the character of Clay and uh, I think it's both him and Penelope were the mainstays of this book and, and working with those words was what kind of kept me going and uh, you know, the amount of times I'm, I, well, and I did have to quit the book twice. My wife made me quit once and uh, she's the real unheralded uh, hero of this book because she made me stop and it's the old cliche that you don't know what you've got until it's taken away from you and uh, after about six weeks I was ready and uh, and then I found we went and away and and read through it it was amazing just to like I can read the book in a day and a half really or two days and and we just read it to sort of go is this alive or is it dead and uh, and I remember coming away from that weekend thinking, God, I've, I've actually done. See, and this is the thing you often feel like such a failure as a writer because you didn't get that done that day. You didn't get that done that year. And then you look at all the work. Like we're sitting here at this huge table. If we put all the work that I'd done on this book across the 13 years on this table, I mean, and, uh, you know, it's... It's sort of, I guess, it looks about five meters by two meters. It is an enormous table, so so people can picture. And just the amount of work, it would so easily just go all the way up to the ceiling and probably more. And so, but so then, I when we went away for that weekend, I I thought, God, I've actually done ninety-seven percent of the work. I've written ninety percent of the book. It's just you just got to go in, get your hands dirty, don't be too precious, and just get it done now and Mm. then and then it's interesting that you can spend well in this case a decade working on a book and then you can write the last you know the last 50 or 60 pages in a month and uh but you know but you can do that because you've got all treatments written and you've got it all mapped out and you've done little pieces of writing i remember i was going to it's funny sitting um here talking about it, but I remember there was one. I was, on the 19th of December, I was going to deliver Bridge of Clay at the end of 2016. I had the last part still to write, but I'd written, I'd already written it before, but it was going to feature in the middle of the book. But so I had these chapters written, I had treatments written for other things, I had ideas out, and I just went right. It's four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I'm delivering the book at nine o'clock, and I just sat there and I just furiously typed. I'd be sort of going bang, bang, bang. 15 minutes, chapter done. 15 minutes, another wow. chapter done. And oh, it was totally incomprehensible. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I didn't deliver uh, that. I delivered the first, so it's eight parts. I delivered the first seven parts and I left it. But, I, but it was there. And, uh, and the big thing was there was a, the, the most important chapter where we see what happened in Clay's past that has made him like he is now. Uh, and I couldn't ring, re- couldn't get any emotion out of that chapter anytime I wrote it. It's it like sometimes we have a problem with, you know, it can be anything. It can be trying to hang a door or trying to get that pick, and you're missing something. Oh, what am I missing? There's something that I'm not doing here. And that night, at, or that morning, when I was furiously typing, I looked at that chapter and I went, what is it? I just went, you don't have time. Just write. Just write. Go, just take what you've got and use it and write, and then it struck me. I went, ah, oh, that's it, that's it, and uh, and it was just one little thing where he called his mum the mistake maker, and referred to her nickname, and uh, and it just made me made me understand why there was no emotion is because it didn't bring any of it of the backstory into it. And, and that's where often your connections are being made. Think of the end of Gallipoli as an example where at the beginning you've got uh, Archie Hamilton's dad, oh not dad, his uncle, saying, what are your legs? Steel springs. What, you know, what are they going How fast are they? As fast as a leopard. And then you get to the end and he's in the trenches and he says to himself, what are your legs? And, uh, and that's when you just start... Especially the first time you see that movie, you start bawling, and it's because you know the history of the characters, and the and the history of the character has just come into the present, and uh, and that's where the emotion is, and that's why when you're reading and you've read that moment, you feel like you're there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Hearing you talk about the uh, your writing process there, and um, and also how you always try and be sort of straight down the barrel when talking about writing, um. It made me remember that in the past, how you describe yourself as like a more like a tradesperson, mm-hmm. and c- quite often I hear authors talk about themselves as like magicians who are like tapping into this cosmic <laughs> place of creativity, and then the characters just fall on the page and they just watch what happens. But I love that you just like, no, nah, it's like clay <laughs> like no, there's no alchemy here. I love that description. <laughs> yeah,
0: I what I I often feel like it, it, I feel like a tradesman who is trying to. Uh, create an artwork and I think that's the that's the thing is and then you're reminded day after day yeah but you're not an artist you're not an artist you're a tradesman so just but but the only hope you've got is to do that work do that work and uh, and it's not like you're trying to fool the reader or fool yourself but you're just trying to touch something that is just that little bit out of reach and 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 I, I love that idea too, that it's interesting too when other, I hear writers talk about how they, they dream about their characters and they, they, the characters do all the work and, and that's great. I'm very, I, and I love that they can, but I just say, when someone asks me about that, I say, no, I just really work on my characters. They, they are work and that's why I love them. Uh, there isn't anything too whimsical about it. Uh, it's just, uh, they become real because I've, Chipped away the bits that don't feel real, and I've, or I've had to add pieces. Like in, in Bridge of Clay, really good example is that one of the, you know, the most pivotal chapters in the book, is the first, uh, first past chapter in part five. Uh, so it's called Growing Up the Dunbar Way, and uh, where we see that family for the first time as they were, uh, before any of the bad things happened. And uh, it was always a bit wooden. It was always a bit, and, and it's because I, I realised looking back. Talk about I'm doing something wrong here. What is it? I was, it was at that point when I was writing. I thought, oh, this book's getting too big. So I was trying to clip things off it all the time. And it was when I went back in to say, get your hands dirty. I went, it's it's fine. You've got to you've actually got to bring these characters back to life. And uh, and that was where I, I just. I made the chapter longer, but there was more life in it. And uh, you know and it's funny how eight pages of reading can be torture, but 12 pages of reading in a chapter can be you know really beautiful and uh, it's, it just needs to be as long as it needs to be. And in that case, that was just I actually needed to insert um, anecdotes and things rather than chip them away. So it's it's figuring out what what the problem is. Is there too much or is there too little? And you only, you only understand those things by being with the book and getting to know the book. And that's what uh, people say to me. Oh, how do you how do you get better at writing? Like how do you, you... I say you've just got to spend time with the book. You've yeah. got to spend time with it and know it. And, uh, and feel like... So if someone said... If you said to me... <laughs> you, just don't test me on this. You can if you want. But if you said, Oh, there's that part where this happens and I would it wouldn't take me more than 30 seconds to find that page uh, because I know that book so well. I know the world of that book so well and so I so I should.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, it's like you're an author and not a sculptor because I imagine it's a lot harder to re-add <laughs> to a sculptor <laughs> rather yeah. than edit in another anecdote. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> I just glue on something. Here. Marcus, talking about this book, um, you talk about how at the, the core of it, the Elevator Pitch is that it's a book about how we're all made of stories. So uh, what's one of the stories or some of the stories that make Marcus Zuzak?
0: It's funny you said The Elevator Pitch. There was, I had a classic moment. I was in London and it was with Bridge of Clay and I was in a, a bookstore and sometimes I get you to sign their, their stock or whatever. And, so, and it was Hatchards which is this iconic old bookstore And I got into the lift at the top and there was a security guard there and he said, so what's your book about? I said, this is literally the elevator pitch (laughs) (laughs) of Bridge of Clay. And so that was just a classic moment. But okay, the story, probably one of my favorite stories that makes me who I am and the writer that I am is that I might've been nine years old or eight years old and I did athletics and uh, I remember running in a race, 100 metres, and, uh, and I remember thinking that I'd won and I got put in sixth position. And I remember going and crying and carrying on to my dad and, uh, and saying, oh, I thought I won and they put me in sixth spot and he said, right, he said, yeah, he said, it looked like I thought you won as well. And he said, but you made one big mistake. You didn't win by enough. You have to win by so much. That they can't take it off you, and in terms of writing now, I don't think of trying to be better than anyone or you're trying to be the greatest writer. But I try to write so much only like myself that no one else could have written that. And I know that no one else could have written *Bridge of Clay*. I know that no one else could have written *The Book Thief*. No matter what anyone thinks of those books, but I just—that's what I'm aiming for. I'm trying to write as much like so much like myself that it could only have been me um, that that wrote that book and uh, and that's one of the pieces of advice that I'll, I'll give people who say they want to be a writer. So what should I do? I say just try to write exactly like yourself. And I mean the other main piece of advice I give people is just just take it easy on yourself sometimes too. Like often I feel like such a failure or I feel lazy or I feel like I'm not really working hard. But that I think those feelings are only there because you want to do well. It's a bit like nerves before something is that they're only there because you want to do well. And, uh, but you'll know when the time comes that you have to sit down and say, now, this is it. Uh, I've been cultivating the iron will for this moment. And that's when you sit down and write and don't stop. And uh, And then if you're lucky, you'll actually finish something, even <laughs> if it takes 13 years.
1: <laughs> I love that. There's nothing like some fatherly advice. Yeah. I mean, that's good advice for life as well. Just be as you as possible.
0: Yeah. and uh, And also, if you... If you do want to do something well, uh, you know, go beyond. Mm. Go beyond a little bit. And, uh, and, and you know, that, that at least gives you the greatest shot that you can possibly have.
1: Absolutely. That's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for your time, Marcus. It's uh, I think been it's absolutely such a pleasure. fantastic. Thank no, you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Good Reading Podcast. Bridge of Clay is out now from Picador and Marcus Zusak is a guest at this year's Sydney Writers Festival, which runs from the 29th of April to the 5th of May. You can find more info in the description to this podcast. Bye!